Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, you've probably heard the saying before, out of sight, out of mind. Something that very easily happens to all of us. Maybe you've had it before where you, you, you put something away in, in storage and, and because it was out of sight, you, it, you didn't really think about it. Eventually it, it, it went out of your mind and, and maybe you even forgot that you, you had it. That's what tends to happen when something is out of sight. Out of sight, out of mind. But that doesn't just happen in relation to things in storage. It can happen in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, for for all of us, Jesus is out of sight. We can't see Jesus. Why is that? Children, do you know why that is? Maybe you remember what we talked about last week in church. We talked about what happened to the Lord Jesus. What the, he ascended into heaven, didn't he? And we can't see heaven, even though it's a, it's a real place. So, so Jesus is out of, out of sight. We don't see him. We can't see him. We, we all live on earth not seeing Jesus. And by nature, left to ourselves, we live not thinking of him either. He's out of sight, out of mind. How many people, how many people live completely unconcerned about Jesus in the world and even in the church? Perhaps you are one of them. But even when we are among God's people, even when by grace we've been brought to faith in Jesus Christ, how often, if we're honest really, how often our lives show that Jesus many times is out of sight, out of mind for us. How little we think of him. How little we worship him. How often our affections are are set on the things below or we're consumed with the things of this life, with the things of this earth, rather than the things which are above. How, How often, think about even just coming to church, how often even in church we are thinking of other things rather than of Jesus Christ. How slow we are to trust in Him. How often we... We live in fear and and despair over the evil that we hear being planned and done to the church of God. How often don't we live as if we're the center of the universe? How often Jesus is out of sight, out of mind. What do we need? What do we need to fix that? Well, we need a sight of Jesus, don't we? We need a sight of him in heaven. And congregation, God, in his grace, has given us that sight of Jesus in his word. You see, God's word, it tells us not just that Christ Jesus ascended to heaven and out of our sight. It tells us also that he is seated in heaven at the right hand of God. That's the sight, that's the picture, as it were, of Jesus in heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God right now at this very moment. 
The Bible shows us this picture in many places, including Ephesians 1, which we read earlier. In verse 20, Ephesians 1, verse 20, Paul, speaking of God's great power, he he tells how God not only raised Christ from the dead, but also set or seated him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. And Jesus' congregation being seated there at God's right hand demands our worship, our awe, our submission, our confidence, and our devotion. He deserves it, all of that. But, but he's seated at God's right hand. It is one being seated at God's right hand. He, we can say he even demands it. And that's what we hope to see as we, we consider the Bible's teaching concerning Jesus sitting at God's right hand as well as his coming again to judge the living and the dead. We read about that from Revelation 20 and 21. Both of these topics are included in Lord's Day 19 from the Catechism. And with God's help, we'll cover them both under the theme, Jesus seated at the right hand of God. First, we'll see the high position he holds. Secondly, the gracious care he shows. And thirdly, the final judgment he will conduct. So congregation, consider with me Jesus seated, seated at God's right hand. What does that mean? Well, consider for one the high position he holds. We see this in how Paul in Ephesians 1 verses 21 to 23, he he expands on what it means that God has seated Jesus at his right hand. It means this, in Ephesians 1 verse 21, that God has set him far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world but also in that which is to come, and has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. What, what is that saying? What is that saying? It's saying that Jesus seated at God's right hand means he's both the ruler over all things and he's the head of his church. And, and that's really what we see in the catechism's answer to, to question 52 when it asks why is it added in the Apostles' Creed that he sits at the right hand of God? Because Christ, the answer is, ascended into heaven. Christ is ascended into heaven for this end that he might appear as head of his church by whom the Father governs all things. He's the head of his church and and the ruler ordained by God over all things. What a high position. It's a position, congregation, of supreme honor. In the Bible times, if you were seated at the right hand of, of someone great, that would be a great honor. We have an example of it in, in 1 Kings Maybe you know a king I'm about to say. The name of the king is Solomon. And children, do you know Solomon? You know who Solomon was, children? He's the son of David, right? The son of King David. And he was one, he, he, he became the next king of Israel after David. And he was one of the greatest, one of the wealthiest, one of the wisest kings who ever lived. And the Bible tells us in, in the beginning of his reign that that Solomon's mother, Bathsheba, came to him once to ask something from him. And do you know what Solomon did? Do you know what Sol- Solomon did when, when his mother came to him? 
He showed her great honor. The Bible says that he rose up to meet her, even though he was this great king over this land, and, and, and he, bowed, he even bowed himself unto her and then sat down on his throne and seated her at his right hand. He was giving her the place of honor. But now think of this. When Christ Jesus ascended into heaven, what does the scripture say that God, the great king over all creation, did? What did he do? The God of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of glory. He, he didn't just let Christ in. He didn't just throw heaven's gates wide open and welcome his son home. But he also seated him, his only begotten son, in his human nature at his own right hand. The right hand, Hebrews says, of the majesty on high. The right hand of the divine king. The right hand of the one who is far greater than any human king. The right hand of the greatest being of all. The one whose greatness is infinite and unsearchable. And, and we need to understand the picture here, congregation, because sometimes I think, because uh, I've thought this, this way a bit before, that you, know, you kind of imagine it in your mind a little bit, and you kind of picture there's God on his throne, and, and, and then he... When he seats Christ on his right hand, he, you know, he gives him a chair beside his throne. But that's not actually what's happening. Because Christ says in Revelation 3, verse 21, he says that he is set down with his Father on his throne. So the Father seating Christ at his right hand is a picture of the Father sharing his throne with the Lord Jesus. Do you see what a high position he holds. It's a position of supreme honor. And isn't that another wonderful testimony of God's acceptance of Jesus as the mediator between God and man? Is that not another glorious encouragement to believe and to continue believing in the Lord Jesus Christ? Because God has given him the place, the position of supreme honor. Oh, what assurance that should give you looking to Jesus Christ, that belonging to him, trusting in him, you will not be put to shame. He is seated. Christ Jesus is seated at God's right hand. It's a great comfort. But it's also a solemn reminder. He holds a position of supreme honor. Do we give him the honor he deserves? And yes, even demands. Do you give him the glory due his name? Do you honor the Son by worshiping him, by following him, by reverencing him, by submitting to him, by believing in him, by devoting yourself to him and to his service? Congregation, do our lives show that Jesus Christ does have the place of supreme honor in our hearts or not? What about the way we spend the Lord's Day? What about the way we worship? What about the music we choose to listen to? What about how we dress? What about how we you know, govern the amount of alcohol we consume. 
What about the words we speak? What, what about the way we speak? What about the things you do with, with others during the week? What about the thoughts that you think? Children, young people, older ones, does your life acknowledge the position of supreme honor that Christ Jesus holds? Seated at God's right hand, are you living your life in honor to Jesus? If you're not, you're not honoring God. You're not honoring God if you are rejecting His Son, Jesus Christ, if you are refusing to believe in Him, if you are refusing to follow and submit to Him. He that honors not the Son, Jesus said in John 5, 23, honors not the Father who sent Him. The solemn words. By seating Jesus at his own right hand, God has given him a position of supreme honor. But it's also a position of supreme authority. You see, Christ being seated at God's right hand means he is ruler of all. He is Lord over all. God has set Christ, Paul says in Ephesians 1, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this world but also in that which is to come and has put all things under his feet. All. Every. Not only in this world but in the world to come. And Paul's speaking here not just of all human and political authorities and governments, but also of all spiritual forces, all angels and all demons. You see what it's saying here? He's saying Christ has power. He's seated at God's right hand. He has power and he has authority over absolutely everything. Everything. Just as Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 28, all power, all authority has been given to him. Everything, absolutely everything and everyone is under his sovereign, almighty control. He is Lord over all. Over all of creation. Over all that, that takes place in this world and in the world to come. Over the righteous and over the wicked. Over the, every political ruler and government. Over the elect angels as well as the devil and his demons, the fallen angels. Over life and death. Over every decision of man. No matter who and how great that man might be. The kings of earth may set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Christ, saying, as Psalm 2 verse 3 describes, let us break their bonds asunder and cast away their cords from us. But it is utterly useless. Because as the psalm continues, he that sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. And then he shall speak unto them in his wrath, and he vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king, my king, Christ Jesus, upon my holy hill of Zion. Jesus Christ's congregation is seated at God's right hand as king, as Lord over all. Right now, as the one who, by whom the Father governs all things. And that means this. He's not waiting for you or me to crown him. He is crowned already. 
He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. It's not our job to put Jesus on the throne. And it's not our job to keep Jesus on the throne. He is on the throne. He is Lord. I cannot change that. You cannot change that. Satan cannot change that. No one can change that. The Lord Jesus Christ reigns. Our job, our calling is to submit to him. Our job, our calling as Christians and as church is to tell it to the world that Jesus Christ reigns by our words, by our speaking up against sin and evil and corruption and by our lives, the way we live. Jesus Christ sits as king over all forever. And what a comfort. What a glorious comfort that is when you belong to him by faith. Because you see, it means there's no risk. There's no risk in belonging to Jesus, in trusting him. It means there can never be a morning. There can never be a morning you'll wake up and he won't be in control. There'll never be a place that you can be that's outside of his control. It doesn't mean there won't be hard things in life, in your life, but it does mean this. There's never a single day, there's never a single moment in your life that can ever be under the dominion, under the control, under the authority of someone other than your Savior, Jesus Christ. The one who loves you with infinite, everlasting love. And he will keep his promise to one day bring you to himself where there will be no more suffering. Ever. Because he is seated at God's right hand, he holds a position of supreme authority, not just, not just as Lord and ruler of all, but also as head of his church. So Paul says in Ephesians 1.22 that, that God has put all things under the feet of Jesus Christ and given him to be head over all things to the church. In Colossians 1 verse 18, he says that Christ is the head of the body, the church. Well, what does that mean, that Christ is the head of the church? Well, maybe children, just think about it this way. Think about your own head for a moment. Right? Okay, now, now think, think about the rest of your body. You have your head and your body. And they're connected, but, but which one of those is in control? Your head or the, the rest of your body? Does your body tell your head what to do or does your head tell your body what to do? Your, your head tells your body what to do, right? It's your head that, that is in control. Your head rules your body. So, so what does it mean that Christ is the head of his body, the church? It means that he's the supreme ruler of his church. He alone. And it means then that we don't tell him what to do. He tells us what to do. And our calling, your calling, children, is to hear and to serve him. Not just because he is king over all, but because he is head of his church. Do you see with me, congregation, how Jesus, seated at the right hand of God, shows us the high position he holds? But maybe you say, yes, but I, he's up there and, I, and, I, and I'm down here. How do I know that he cares for me? How do I know that he, he cares for his church? 
Well, that brings us to our second point. The gracious care Jesus, seated at God's right hand, shows or bestows. And Ephesians 1 hints at that care for his church by making that, that comparison of Christ as the head and the church, the body, the fullness, his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. And if you continue reading in Ephesians later, you come to chapter 5. And there Paul is calling a husband. He's giving some practical instructions to husbands to love their wives. And he says there in verse 28 to 30, so ought, so ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loves his wife loves himself. And then he says this, for no man ever yet hated his own flesh but nourishes it and cherishes it even as the Lord, the church. Beautiful. In the middle of this practical instruction about how husbands are to treat their wives, we're told the Lord nourishes and cherishes his church. For we are members of his body, it goes on to say, of his flesh and of his bones. The Lord shows gracious care for his church. And we see two ways in, summarized for us in the, in the Catechism. 51, question 51 says, What profit is this glory of Christ our head unto us? And the answer is, First, that by his Holy Spirit he pours out heavenly graces upon us, his members, and then that by his power he defends and preserves us against all enemies. It's a beautiful answer. Drawn from Scripture, what gracious care Jesus, the Savior, who is seated at God's right hand, shows to his church, the church for whom he died, the church for whom he gave himself. By his Spirit, just thinking about the first one, he pours out heavenly graces upon his church, upon his people. What are these graces that he pours out on us as true members of his body by his Spirit? Well, for one, there's the grace of salvation and all that's included, at, included in that. The grace of his salvation. There, there's his calling. His, his calling you and, and opening your eyes to see your, your need of him, to see your sin and your misery and, and to show you Jesus. And, and there's what Paul goes on to speak of in Ephesians 2. If you keep reading, he speaks of the Lord's regenerating work, his, his regenerating grace coming to, to you while you were yet dead in sins and trespasses and giving you life. There's the grace of his granting you faith and repentance. There's the grace of his forgiveness of you, the forgiveness of your sins and, and, and justifying you, declaring you righteous, imputing his righteousness unto you. There's the grace of his bringing you into fellowship and peace with God. There's the grace of his sanctifying you, of his conforming you to the image of his son. There's the grace of his fitting you for glory. There's, there's the grace of his keeping and preserving you by his power unto the salvation ready to be revealed at the last day. Heavenly graces. Grace for grace for grace for grace and, and think too of the care that he shows in calling and sending forth and equipping laborers to serve in his church to gather and to strengthen his people we read last week in uh, the ascension the sermon on Christ's ascension from Ephesians 4 where Paul speaks of the gifts that Christ gives to his church for that very purpose apostles and prophets evangelists pastors and teachers elsewhere in scripture we read of elders and deacons 
These are Christ's gifts to his church, his graces. He gives these offices and men to fill them for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying, the building up of the body of Christ. Or do you see what gracious care he shows his church? Think of the care, too, that he shows in giving different gifts to his people. The Bible speaks of spiritual gifts in places like Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. And though it's true that some of those gifts, like speaking in tongues, for example, no longer exist because now we have the whole complete word of God, Yet the truth, the truth remains that Christ by His Spirit gives individual believers, not just pastors, not just you know, prophets, and, or I mean elders and deacons. He doesn't just give them different gifts by which they can serve, but He gives His gifts to all people by which they can serve and edify the church. It's all part of Christ's gracious care for His church. Think, just think for a moment, congregation, of those whom, whom God has used in your life to convict you of sin, to show you your sin. Think of those who, whom God has used to show you Christ, to show you something of His beauty and, and of His glory. Think of those who, whom God has used in your life to, to draw you to Himself and to help you grow in your understanding of God's Word and how to apply it in your life. Maybe it was a relative. Maybe it was a friend, a fellow church member. Maybe a pastor or an elder or deacon. Think of all the, great, the ways Christ has shown you gracious care as part of his church. So humbling, isn't it? So humbling. Do you thank him? Do you worship him? Without him, we could do nothing. By his spirit, Christ pours out heavenly graces upon his members, but he also, by his power, as head of his church, defends and preserves them against all enemies. Jesus said in John 10 that no one can pluck his sheep out of his hands. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because we'll look at this more in a couple of weeks, Lord willing, when we look at Lord's Day 21, but but for now, just think how much comfort this offers to you, dear child of God. Not only, as we saw earlier, is there never a moment in your life when Christ is not in control. But also, with all the the spiritual enemies we may face, there is never a moment in your life when you are not ultimately safe in Him. So that nothing, as Paul says in Romans, can separate you from His love. Because Christ is Lord over all and as head of his church, he will not lose any, a single one of his sheep. Do you see how Jesus, seated at the right hand of God, demands then our worship, our awe, our confidence, our submission, our devotion? Maybe you say it's so hard to see that. Evil seems to be winning. Things seem to be getting worse and worse. There's so much that seems to be working against us, so many enemies within and without. Well, consider again then Jesus seated at God's right hand. Not just the high position he holds and the gracious care he shows, 
but also the final judgment he will conduct. The passage we read from Revelation 20 and 21 gave us a picture of that judgment. John there sees a vision of a great white throne and one sitting on it from whom, whose face the earth and the heavens fled away. There was no place for them. And then he sees all the dead standing before God being judged according to their works. And those whose names are not found in the book of life are cast into the lake of fire. But others, others believers, those who na- whose names are by grace written in the book of life, they are welcomed into the new creation. It's a picture you see of the final judgment. And the Bible speaks of this judgment in many other places too. Paul in Acts 17 says that God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. And Christ himself will be the judge. God has ordained, he has appointed Jesus Christ, Peter says in Acts 10 verse 42, to be the judge of the living and the dead. So there's this final judgment coming in and for every true believer in Jesus Christ. That final judgment offers tremendous comfort. For one thing, think about who the judge is. It's Jesus. Because Jesus is the judge, believers have nothing to fear. In spite of all their sins and their sinfulness in and of themselves. Because this judge, in the words of the Catechism's answer to question 52, to borrow those words... This judge is the very same person who before offered himself for my sake to the tribunal of God and has removed all curse from me. The judge, you see. This is why, dear Christian, you don't have to be afraid of the judgment. Because the judge is Jesus Christ. The judge has already paid the sentence that you owe. He has already personally and fully satisfied the wrath of God for your sins. He has redeemed you from the curse of the law, having been made a curse for you, so that we might receive the blessing of salvation in him. And so when he comes and he examines our lives, the lives of his people, the lives of those who are looking to Christ, in spite of all our sins and sinfulness, there will be no condemnation. There will be no condemnation as Romans 8 verse 1 declares to those who are in him, to those who are in Christ Jesus and who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Jesus himself will conduct the final judgment. What a comfort that is, that should be to God's people, to you who belong to him by true faith. But, but, but don't, don't just think, dear believer, dear child of God, don't just think of who the judge is. There's also what he will do as judge. He shall cast, to use again the words of the catechism, he shall cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation, but shall translate or take me with all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joys and glory. That's the prospect we have, who are, we who are true believers. That's a future we may be certain of. Look into and trusting in Jesus, the one who is seated at God's right hand. 
all the enemies of Christ and His church, all those who oppose the gospel, all that is against Him and against His Son, or against God and against His Son, Jesus Christ, they will be removed forever. They will be cast into everlasting condemnation, into the lake of fire. And I, I know, congregation, that that there's a mixture of feelings here because we have loved ones. If we are Christians, we, we, we know we have loved ones. We have friends that, that we aren't Christians. We have co-workers that aren't Christians. And this, this bothers us and this concerns us. We don't want them to go there. And, and so there's this mixture. But, but there's a comfort, you see, because it means that in the end, in the end, Christ will win. Those who oppose Him, those who persecute Christ and persecute His people, they will, never, they, they will be cast into everlasting condemnation into the lake of fire, and they will never escape from there. They will never be able to persecute Christ or His people again. But all God's people will go to be with Christ forever in glory, into the kingdom, as Jesus puts it in Matthew 25, into the kingdom prepared for them from the foundation of the world, into a place of eternal life, into, as Revelation 21 says, a new heaven and a new earth, into a place where God himself will dwell with them and be with them, into a place where they will be his people and he shall be their God, a place where they will have unbroken, sweet communion with him, never ever to be, to be broken by their sin again, a place where God where God himself will come and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. A place where there will be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, nor any more pain. That's what Jesus Christ will do as judge. And so you see, as Christians, we need to take that and we ought to take that And we ought not to live in fear. We ought not to live in despair. But in all our sorrows, in all our persecutions, in all our difficulties, let the final judgment that Jesus will conduct lift up your head to look for him, to give you hope, give you confidence. Jesus is seated at God's right hand and he will have the final judgment victory. Put your confidence in Him. Worship Him. Stand in awe of Him and devote yourself to Him. That's what He demands. It's a comfort. The final judgment of Jesus Christ that He will conduct is a comfort to those who are His. But of course, that begs the question. Are you His? Jesus, he demands your worship, your awe, your confidence, your devotion, your submission. Is that what he's receiving from you? Is he? Or if you be honest for a moment, does that really not concern you at all? You maybe give some attention to him when you come to church, but, but when, for the rest of your life, the rest of your week, if you were to be honest, he doesn't really cross your mind all that much. And when he does, you kind of just push him, push him away. He's out of sight, out of mind. And you just do whatever you want. If that's you this morning, then you have no right to think you're a Christian. 
You have no right to think that just by coming to church or even by being a church member, you're okay. You have no right to think that when Jesus comes back in judgment, he will take you to himself in glory. Jesus Christ is a righteous judge. And if you are not living a life, if your life is not hid with him in God, if you're not united to him by faith, if you're not living a life of repentance from sin and faith in him, if you are not confessing and forsaking sin, you are living in rebellion and enmity against him, no matter how good you might look on the outside. And Christ will not take you to himself into heavenly joys and glory. But he will say, depart from me, you cursed. Into everlasting fire. Prepared for the devil and his angels. But he, you see, these are hard words and we don't want to think about them by nature. Congregation, these are words of love. These are words of grace. Because he hasn't come yet. But he's told you. He's told you what will happen. He's told you what will come. So that you might, might not continue in sin and, and, and unrepentance. But that you might repent. That you might submit. That you might kiss the Son and bow your knee to him. And submit to him. Because he is exalted. He has been exalted to the Father's right hand to grant repentance. And to grant forgiveness of sins. Oh, then come to him. It is a day of grace still. Come to him. And put your trust in him. And join the body of believers who confess with the psalmist, blessed are all they that put their trust in him. And we will sing that song together then in glory one day after Christ has come and we are with him. And every tear has been wiped away. Blessed, blessed are all they that put their trust in him, in the one Jesus Christ seated at the right hand of God. Amen.